Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you here from Hobart. We've been renewed for a third season. Jeff's back from Trumpland, America, this time last week at the <laughs> Trump victory party and out of the chaos of Hobart. And one follows the other, Jeff. Unexpected things uh, in both camps, I suppose, and, and fairly chaotic scenes in both. But uh, I'm going to say that one has slightly more gravity for the world at large than the other. Yes, exactly. Australia getting beaten in two and a half days. That being the matter, of course, uh, getting rolled inside, well, inside 95 overs in two innings consecutively, yep. uh, facing you know as fewer balls as they've ever faced in a home loss since 1928 to pick but one statistic. What a bloody shambles, Jeff. The one, the one that absolutely does my head in is that uh, South Africa sort of just crawled past 300, you know, made made 320 odd fighting on a on a seeming wicket, and they won by an innings and 80 runs. Now that. That just doesn't add up. That just should not happen. And it, it, it basically can't happen in cricket unless something spectacularly buggers up. And it, it did. It did. And then we're on the cusp of Australia's first ever home whitewash as well. So make no mistake, cricket is in crisis. And we look forward to detailing every last detail of it, I guess, as we'll go through each section, each detailing day, each moment. Details. Detailing the details. Good yeah. start for me there. Yeah, great, great. Really start. good start. Like so that. let's just go through it here. So as Jared Waitley said during the during the, the, the batting collapse on, on day four, the batting team or the batting group, if you like, they are fried. Uh, the, you know, the captain is saying the system is broken. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated, questioning the player's commitment to the baggy green. The coach is under threat despite having three years on his recently renewed contract. They're directing all the players back to Sheffield Shield cricket, which is, I mean, unprecedented in my time following the game, something like that to occur in these circumstances. The chief executive's being asked about his job. The high performance director is putting them all on notice. Jeff, this has to be, and then selectors are leaving as well. I'm missing them as well. Can't miss out on, on, on Rod Marsh and his crew of selectors. This yep. has to be the lowest point that Australian cricket has been at in our lifetimes. In, yeah, in, in our memory, I suppose, people are talking about the, the 80s. And look, I was at kindergarten at that stage, so I you know, wasn't really paying particularly close attention to Alan Border's early exploits well, in the mid-1980s. Well, yeah, but you, speaking of the mid-80s, you've got to remember that half the side was ravaged from Rebel Tours to South yep. Africa. They just came out of the uh, the revolution that was World Series cricket. So there were, I mean, there were some mitigating factors. Well, in, there were in, lots in, of missing players. That's right. And and, and Faf de Plessis made a point of this in his press conference after this second test. He said, we're, we're playing a full-strength Australian team here. You know, there were a couple of injuries in Perth, but, but they had pretty much their first choice group of players going into Perth, you know, a couple of bowlers like Cummins and Pattinson who were not available, but there's nothing saying they would have particularly been picked had they been available. This side was the number one side in the world last time we did this podcast back uh-huh. in February in Christchurch, it was, yep. wasn't it? Yep. That was the last edition or last episode of season two, and uh, and, and we, 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 we sort of uh, took some enjoyment in that at the time, you know, how Australia could with such a middling record away from home and um, having just thrashed some pretty ordinary sides at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, made their way to the top of the tree. But now they've lost five consecutive test matches and there's a commonality in those losses and it's been epic collapses. There, there's there's a bizarreness to it. So, I mean, I went to Sri Lanka mid-year to watch the Australian team going around there, watch them lose that series 3-0. And, you know, they came into it. There was this weird thing where there was a presentation. They got given the mace. 
the oh, mace, yes. you know, the glorious <laughs> mace. Every every kid dreams of growing up to hold the mace, don't they? Oh, one day, one day I might I might be presented with the mace, <laughs> the world number one mace. Uh, and they got given it in Sri Lanka, and the Sri Lankan authorities actually asked to have that done in private. They didn't have it done as a public event because they were like, oh, well, it's, it's going to make our supporters depressed, and it's going to mean they won't turn out to watch Australia because they'll be too scared that Sri Lanka will be smashed by these mighty number one Australians. Well, it looked like it on the first morning, too. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, was, I was there for the limited overs games, but right. the, the test match, I mean, morning one, Mitchell well, they, Stark yeah, went. They rolled Sri Lanka for 117, I think, from memory, or something around their very low score. Um, and then Sri Lanka in the second innings had a big comeback. Kusal Mendes made that terrific 180. Mm. Um, and, you know, at, at, what, 22 years of age or something, played a handful of test matches, turned it on its head, and, and they lost. And then Australia just kept collapsing. You know, they, they were, in Gaul, it was the same as it was here. They lost before lunch on the third day of play. And I guess now looking at the five losses in a row, and you don't see that very often in Australian cricket. That tends to be when people lose their jobs and we're fairly confident there'll be significant changes in the Australian 11 before Adelaide. But five in a row, I mean, uh, six in a row if they lose in Adelaide, which would have to be short-priced odds at the moment. Then they move into Pakistan. Now, Pakistan until very recently were the number number one ranked side in the world for what it is worth, but they always play away due to the fact that home test matches haven't existed in Pakistan since 2009 in any case. So I don't think them being on the road will hold many fears for them, especially after seeing what, what South Africa have done to them without their best two players. And Dale Steyn and, and, and I mean, A.B. Davilias Vidili- AB haven't been here either. You'd hope if you were Pakistan, you're coming in, you're, you're, your first um, assignment is a day-night test at the Gabba. Now, it could rain and that could interfere, but it's also likely to be a lot of moisture in the air. Um, the wicket might be a little greener than usual to, to help the pink ball hold up. And if Pakistan's fast bowlers can come in and hit their mark immediately and make use of those conditions, we could be seeing more collapses up there. Oh, tell me about well, Sahel Khan, who took wickets in England, as did uh, Mohammed Amir, who will obviously be a point of attention for probably all the wrong reasons initially. But I can assure you, having watched that test series closely and followed it in the UK, that he's as quick as he ever was. Um, Rahat Ali's turned into quite a good little operator. Wahab, um, Wahab Riaz, I'm forgetting the yeah. quickest of all four of them. So yeah, I the think big bad wolf, you know, you, the, you put, he puffs and he puffs and he blows the houses down. You put those four on, on yeah. Brisbane on what will almost certainly be a green top and that could be you know if they can't put Yassir Shah there the leg spinner because you know Shane Warne always loved bowling at the Gabba Yassir Shah modelled his action on Shane Warne and he's you know performed in some pretty similar ways he's taken some stunning wickets with huge turning leg breaks and then he gets a lot with the straight one because he foxes people with the turn there's there's a lot of Shane Warne about about uh, that particular leg spinner. Yeah, without wanting to be doomsayers, it's, it's not outside the realms of possibility that five will become nine. That's effectively what we're saying here. I mean, it, you know, it would be unusual for a team to lose that many tests in a row without at least finding a draw through a flat mm-hmm. track or, or some resilience, to use Steve Smith's favourite word yesterday, yep. at some stage or another, but um, even with a remodelled side. But yep. a remodelled side that, you know, and we'll go into this in greater depth when we talk about the batting specifically, but a remodelled side that will be mostly brought together of players who haven't played test cricket before. Not, can, not an easy task. Can I also say on the Pakistan thing, uh, mild-mannered school teacher bloke, but how much would Mickey Arthur love to come <laughs> over here coaching Pakistan and whitewash the uh, the guy who took his job off him, Darren Lehman, in England? That, yeah. that, would, that wouldn't be bad at all. And then, and then of course, Australia then, and again, I don't want to get a bit, I don't want to go too far here. It's only two losses for the summer and there's a lot of cricket to be played, but then they go to India. They were turned over 4-0 there last time and, and you'd have to think that 
looking at the way that India play at home and specifically play against Australia over many, many years. Australia have only won one series there yeah. since the Beatles were still formed, you know? Right. Well, uh, exactly that. Look, I, I, think, I think we are getting ahead of ourselves. I think Pakistan struggle enough in Australian conditions that, you know, they'll... It's fun, they, though. They may be competitive. It's, fu- uh, it's fun to talk about these nightmare scenarios, you know? I'd, I'd say Pakistan would have to lose at least one test. Um, they may still win the series. They could, they could still win it 2-1, but I've, I've got to bet that they'll lose at least one. And, and it could turn around pretty quickly. You know, they may well struggle as they have traditionally. The batsmen may struggle over here. But it's, as you say, it's possible. Suddenly we're talking about these things as not completely beyond the realms that you could be running into that India series, uh, playing on ranked turners like, uh, like we did last time and having the Indians shred what's left of the Australian cricket team. So, so there's the context, rock bottom. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon going through the carnage that was the second test at Bell Reeve Oval in Hobart. And we can't miss the Australian batting lineup. We're going to not miss them in this segment. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to deal with morning four first rather than morning one. Admittedly, they made nearly twice as many runs the second time around. But for mine, it was an altogether more demoralising experience because on day four, I felt as though they had the opportunity to, if not win the game, if not even draw the game, uh, play in such a way that could reset the balance and create some normality about this summer. But by contrast, they, they collapsed again in, in, in the fashion that we've become so accustomed to in the last couple of months or the last few months. And really, they've only gone to further their problems. And let's make the point that morning four was really, it was morning three because they'd lost an entire second day to rain. So within seven sessions of the test match and giving South Africa time to score 320, uh, they'd still managed to lose the test in that time. And it it, it was... Just that complete lack of, of any sort of resistance or even the ability to, you know, to know how to go about resisting. Yeah, it's, it's a target-rich environment, the Australian top seven. So we're going to go through it in some detail. But let's deal with morning four to begin with. So the collapse in Toto was eight for 32 from Usman Khawaja's dismissal onwards. He batted, I know we're slightly at odds here, but I think he batted really well at the end of day two to persevere because then we'll come to this when we talk about South Africa in greater depth, but that they were putting on a clinic on, on afternoon three and, 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 and somehow Khawaja managed to be there by, by morning four. And I felt that if he could just get through the first half hour of morning four, that you know mm-hmm. sometimes persevering an incredibly difficult period helps one prosper um, later in their innings. And, and, and that, was the, that was the complete opposite, playing and missing a couple of times and getting an edge behind with a, an unflattering back, back foot drive. Yeah. Yeah, that's look. I think he batted well on on that third day, in that he he played down the line of his stumps, and he trusted that if the ball was going to move extravagantly, it would beat his edge, and it did. Um, and there's some level of fortune involved in that. But when you're when you're facing good seam bowlers who are jagging it around, uh, a lot of batsmen will say that's all you can do is is uh, protect the thing that you know you can protect, keep the ball out of your pads, keep it out of your stumps, and just hope it misses the edge. And it did that. But then when he came out on that fourth morning, it was just such a waste. You know, edging one through the cordon plays and misses at another one, and then nicks a third one playing a back foot drive all in the space of an over. It's just such a waste, and it's just a complete... It's, it's mentally being switched off. It's not actually uh, knowing what you've gone out there to do. How can you lose your concentration when you were doing that so well the previous day? And I joked with you when that happened. I turned around and said, all oh, right, we'll be, we'll be out of here by lunch. And it was, you know, it was a throwaway comment, but there was a kernel of truth in the middle of all of that, owing to what we've seen before. And that was precisely what happened. Let's be honest, Adam Voges, um, I think you've written over night, Jeff, that the, the, the shot looks like his mindset at the moment and Australian cricket more broadly? He, he's, it was, he had no idea what he was doing. It was complete confusion. He was sort of thinking about running the ball away. Then he was thinking about leaving the ball. Then he just froze, kind of got stuck in his crease, you know, described it like a, a butterfly pinned to the board. Um, <laughs> and
and just ended up sort of guiding it off the face of the bat into the gully. And uh, and there goes a catch. And then Kellen Ferguson, was he was sort of thinking about ducking. He was thinking about swaying away. He was thinking about defending it off the back foot and just ends up punching the ball into the gully. You know, he's out off the glove. And then Neville gets one at the throat. And instead of just swaying back to get out of the way of the ball, he brings his hands up and punches that into the gully as well. So three caught behind the cordon for absolutely bugger all in terms of runs. Um, and th- that's what Steve Smith is so frustrated with. He got in that press conference and he said, I need players in this team who have fight. I need players who are willing to get in there and grind it out. And I don't have that at the moment. Yeah, let's deal with the first two. Uh, I think Neville, out of the three of them, can be excused on the basis of rebuttal. Yeah, Absolutely it was a, a searing ball. bounce. Whereas the other two were, were, were balls that, I mean, with a bit more confidence, I think both would have felt happy to let fly over the top of the middle stump. But... And, and maybe Neville wasn't expecting that sort of short ball because he was expecting it to be pitched up. But nonetheless, I still think the onus is on you as a batsman to get out of the way of a short ball instead of trying to defend yourself with your gloves or your bat handle up around your throat. Yeah, it's just bad decision making. And as we've both spoken about, Simon Kadic has talked about um, routinely on our on our radio coverage that uh, it's, making big scores is about making lots of good decisions consecutively. And they and they none of those were good decisions. But going back to Voges, I mean, he's a favourite of the final word. We we've really enjoyed his uh, unexpected stint in the baggy green debuting in Dominica when he was 35 years old and making that wonderful century on debut, um, briefly having a batting average higher than Don Bradman when he was playing his 20th innings. And we made a big deal of that at the time as well. And we really enjoyed his work. But yep. I think it's fair to assume, Jeff, that he'll be the first one out of this side and he'll finish with a career average of 61.87, which is still the second highest after Bradman. But parking that, of course, because I think there's some mitigating factors around that, namely that the West Indies bowling lineup. But we can, mm. you know, we can... Still we can, averages 537 against the West yeah, we can forgive him for, 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 you know, you can only make the runs against who, who you face. But, right, I but think the point is that he hasn't made the runs against exactly. anyone else. Yeah, precisely. So that'll be probably where his career ends. And likewise, Callum Ferguson will finish with with the career average of two. I, I can't imagine he'll be um, getting a second I think crack. they'll keep him. I think they'll play him. Really? You think they'll play him? I mean, you don't I, think that he'll he'll lose his spot? If you're going to have a broom and you want to... I think I think Callum Ferguson will move up into Voja's spot at five and mm. because he's, a, he's an Adelaide Oval... Native. He's a South Australian. He's made lots of runs over there. He made 100, I think, in the last day-night Shield game they played there from memory. That's right, you did. Um, He's, you know, he's going to be on his home turf. He'll have that home support. And, you know, I don't think you can pin it on him out of everybody's mistakes. Uh, I just think they'll... They'll have that instinct that maybe he can come good. Um, give him a game on his home ground, move him up to five, have someone coming in at six who maybe offers something as a, in an all-round capacity. But but by God, they just need some strength in the batting. Yeah, and we'll get to that. We'll get to who they might be able to turn to in a moment. I, I think the Ferguson debate largely comes down to whether they want to excise what happened in the change rooms yesterday. Um, Darren Lehman said it was the, the quietest he's ever heard of change rooms before. Um, James Sutherland at his media conference we attended this morning was very clear that they were going to have wholesale changes. There will be changes. There will said. be changes. And then said he didn't know what they would be. Changes. What a terrible year 2016 has been on that. But I guess the overarching point here is there will be changes. Now, if Ferguson stays, so be it. But Voges, I think, it's just the nature of the beast. He got a sensational delivery first up from uh, uh, Vernon Philander and that's the sort of delivery you get when you're in when you're mm-hmm. playing for your career I felt at the time he just felt like it was a hard luck story uh, ready to be written essentially that he he was uh, always going to um, cop something ordinary when he needed a, a slice of luck yeah, in the same he way did. he did in Perth a week but before but the same thing happened to him in, in Trent Bridge during the Ashes he, he got out cheaply in that first innings collapse and he said he knew his career was over you did an interview with I him did, on yeah. this very subject and he came out in the second innings with a very definite plan not to drive 
drive at the ball, you know, to, mm. to really uh, cover up his wicket and play extremely cautiously um, and, and make good calls. And he made a half century there and then he got kept on and he made 70 odd at the Oval. That's right. And, and suddenly he was on the way back up. Now, he, he had that opportunity in the second innings here and he made a, a terrible decision, uh, a very confused decision. And he didn't have that kind of clarity that he had in that second innings at Trent Bridge. So he was able to pull his career out of the fire once, but uh, I don't think that will happen again. So the bowlers trudged off one after another in that in that second innings. And it was all over within 90 minutes. 11.53, to be precise, was when that second innings concluded. All out for 161 was, was the damage all told. Steve Smith made 31 after making 48 unbeaten in the first innings. He was obviously one player who did find a way to adapt. Indeed, a player who hasn't actually adapted that well to those sort of conditions uh, in the past when he's been confronted with them. So that was rather mm-hmm. encouraging from the captain. But the, the bowlers folded, as you, you'd expect There's in those circumstances. You, you, out of 22 Australian batsmen in that match, five made double figures. And Joe Many was one of them Joe in Manny the first innings on 10. the boo. So, so you, you mentioned Trent Bridge, Jeff, and, and I think that that alongside any number of different collapses were what immediately came to mind. That was um, You go back to morning one, and we'll do that now. You may as well. David Warner started the rot on morning one with a, with mm-hmm. a shot that Richard Hines described as a, bla- a brain explosion so significant that you could see grey matter splattered on the sight screen. And I don't think that's overstating yeah, the matter well, either. I think he said, he said subsequent batsmen could blame their dismissals on the grey matter <laughs> that had covered up the sight screen. Um, yeah, good line, but not inaccurate. It was it was just a bizarre shot, and then he came out in the second innings, played the same shot, and missed the ball on that particular occasion, um, and and kept on playing some of those shots through his innings. I, I know you don't agree with me here, and you think he played well, but I, I think he played well in patches. But he just kept going at balls outside off stump that were you know that he couldn't predict that were seeming away. He was trying to play back foot drives and so on. You know, he got a bit lucky; it missed the edge a few times, and he made forty five runs. But You've seen him. I mean, we've seen him play well in Hobart, indeed, in his second test sure. against New Zealand when he, he made his first century and, and really bunkered down and, and sort of ground his way through that innings, carried his bat and very nearly got Australia to a win. We've seen he can adapt his game, and it seemed to me in this particular match, he just didn't. He just refused to. Uh, Jay Burns was out cheaply in the second innings and the first innings, yeah. like, like many of them were. Uh, the second Norton innings. Norton won for Jay Burns. Strangled down, strangled as well. I don't like that. Strangled down the league side for the second time this year in the, in the, in the second innings, which was. Uh, which I think in many respects was emblematic of the day they went to tea as the rain started. The ball, as he went out, the rain started and oh, they had yeah. to go off. It was yeah, like 20 seconds after the dismissal. Um, but, but, the also... first, but the first thing is he got a, he got a butte. He got one that, that, that swung away yep. and, and jags back. But so he was before falling you knew it... over into the shot at the time. I mean, there, there yeah. are still technical issues with Joe Burns where he's, he's never really convinced me. You know, he, he made a, a clubbing 100 at the Gabba, sort of batting for declaration runs, and he made that very good 171, I think it was, in New Zealand. Yep, Christchurch. Um, so, I mean, he's he's had that, but that's really been his only truly convincing innings for mine at test level. Uh, watched him play in Sri Lanka. He he was dropped after two tests there because he just hadn't adapted and Rangana Harath kept sneaking the ball through him, you know, uh, getting it past his feet and bowling him early. He made three very low scores and, and a 29-odd when he came out and, and just went the slog right from the start and hit a couple of sixes. But. He- that's all he was able to conjure, and he was dropped over there. Yeah, we've largely dealt with Voges, but Kawaja also nicked behind in the first innings. Not a bad ball, but probably a ball he would rather leave had he had his time again. Now, Callum Ferguson's dismissal in the first innings was was uh, was what left the score five for twenty one, and that probably again we're talking about what, what symbolised yeah, the day. Five it was seventeen, wasn't it? Was, I, think I think it was even less than. Well, that. I thought it was five for twenty one, yeah, but I'll defer to your defer to your. Either way, it doesn't matter an awful lot. It was either way, he got all. he got run out by a <laughs> backup wicketkeeper from backward point who was substitute fielding. 
Now, if that's not an embarrassing way to get out, I don't know what is. Uh, went for a second run that was never there. He's pretty slow in the field. I think that's the other thing that counts against Kellen Ferguson is he adds nothing as a fieldsman. He's very slow going after the ball. Um, he's not a great catcher. I think he put down a catch in that mm. match as well. Um, and so coming back for the second run, you know, he was sort of doing the proverbial, you know, running through cookie dough and just couldn't get up to the other end. And uh, Dane Villas had the ball in from side on and... Uh, got rid of him. The unbeaten 48 from Smith flattered Australia. They were all out for 85, so the collapse obviously was 10 for 85. The previous week in Perth when the when David Warner was dismissed through yep. the end of that innings, it was 10 for 86, and we had a 10 for 83 in the previous test match they played in Sri Lanka. I know Rick Finlay did, did a deep dive on these collapses that you wrote about, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, it's on the ABC website if you if you jump on there and... And look, for my name, the last couple of articles, you'll find that going through all of Rick's uh, great stats that he's pulled out since 2013. Um, yeah, so there, were, there, were, there was a collapse of nine for, I think, in Gaul as well that was massive um, in that first innings, and then a collapse of six for in Pelicali. So across the last five tests, they've each involved a, a big collapse with you know, six or more wickets going down for sort of fewer than you know, 10 runs apiece. And, and the commonality in that makes me feel mostly for the fast bowlers. I mean, uh, Mitchell Stark took three wickets on afternoon one, which, well, in the, in the final session of, of day one, to at least give Australia some hope. And Josh Hazelwood did likewise with a couple before stumps. So they're only, mm. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, remarkably, it could have been worse after one day and when, and when the rain came. But um, and, and Hazelwood bowled well sort of after they broke the partnership. True. That, that um, you know, they managed to close out that innings. But the key is that one partnership between Quentin de Kock and Temba Bavuma. And this is what I wrote about where uh, South Africa found a way. A couple of their inexperienced players that only played 11 or 12 tests apiece, but they managed to get together, put on 140-odd runs and get their team from a vulnerable position to a dominant position. Now, it's only one partnership and that's all it took, and that's what Australia hasn't been able to find for so long. And then with the ball as well, there's the other two members of that quartet, Nathan Lyon and Jay Meany. I think many to an extent can be, not excused completely because it's a challenging situation to come in in your debut, but Nathan Lyon... Yeah, but why was he picked? Why was Jay Meany picked? Yeah. Ahead of Jackson Bird, a Tasmanian player who has, who has bowled Thousands of overs on Bell Reeve Oval. I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm just going to say thousands. Maybe it's hundreds. I don't know. Look, I'll go back and check the stats later. He's bowled a lot, and he's a he's a sort of bang it into the deck seam bowler who nips the ball around, does the ball particularly fast. Guess who else does that? Vernon Philander mm. got six for uh, bowling between 125 and 129 kilometres per hour and moving the ball off the seam. That's exactly what Jackson Bird does. Now, why in hell would you not pick that player? on that wicket, in those conditions, on that morning, uh, and get them into the match instead of a South Australian bowler who doesn't particularly know how to operate on that deck. Yeah, it, I think I think it's appropriate. Belief. I think it's appropriate scrutiny given that Bird was training with the squad as a as a supplementary player to as injury cover effectively yep. um, in the days leading up. I think many was given that opportunity because he was given the opportunity to be in the squad to begin with, and they and they felt it was the the the, the, the consistency of the squad. Embarrassed to make the correct decision, mm. and that's actually how I think it goes. The, the selectors were not making the right decision at the time; they were making a decision to try to avoid avoid embarrassment for themselves because they'd left Bird out of the squad, put many in the squad, and Rod Marsh had gone on the record saying, oh, it's because Manny's a better batsman and Bird doesn't score enough runs, which is the most ridiculous reason I've ever heard for picking a player. It absolutely staggers me that someone could bring up such a ludicrous rationale. There is no sense to that decision at all. But having made that decision, they then couldn't bring the correct player in for Hobart without losing face because they'd already gone on record picking that squad. You know, it is an absolute embarrassment that you've got selectors tangling themselves up like that and making 
foolish decisions that are detrimental to the team because they're worried about their own humiliation. It'll be curious to see whether Joe Minnie is retained for the Adelaide Test match, given that it actually is his home deck. Yeah. Uh, and whether they, I mean... If anywhere, that's where he should have been picked. So, so we'll, we'll, I'm sure that that debate will go on as the third seamer. I think one that is more likely to come up before that is Australia's principal spinner in Nathan Lyon. Marvellous numbers for his country, the most successful and prolific off-spinner Australia has ever produced, and someone who has been a mainstay of this side, indeed, he's the most experienced player in this side. So for many reasons, he is a, a logical player to keep mm-hmm. around the squad. But Sings the song. Sings the song. Which is really relevant which, at the which, moment. Which is, which is not for nothing when they're winning, but indeed not, not, not worth a huge amount. Of but Nathan Lyon is a player coming under additional scrutiny, and I don't think it's because... I mean, it's hard to judge him against uh, bowling figures when he's bowling to all at 85 or indeed after the collapse the previous week. On a green-seeming wicket. Yeah, so it isn't entirely fair to to provide that scrutiny. But my sense is if they're going to take a a broom through the side and all all indications are that they will, that they'll consider his spot in the same way they would the batsman, which, again, I'm not sure is necessarily as fair to him as it otherwise could be. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see someone like Stephen O'Keefe who... Um, has got a good record with the pink ball considered. And likewise, I wouldn't be entirely flummoxed if they played four seamers and they tried to pick a batsman who can bowl a bit of spin to give the bowlers a bit of a rest. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that there's a couple, namely Ashton Agar and Glenn Maxwell, who would put their hand up for such a role. Yeah, look, I, it it hurts my heart a little bit that, that Nathan Lyon's spot is even being discussed because, you know, he was treated so unfairly uh, through 2013, that India tour into the Ashes, where he kept being dropped and, and retained and dropped. D- and retained. D- disgraceful you know, when he was dropped for that for that Test match, you know, the first Test having, match having of the Ashes, taken having taken seven in, in exactly. India. Yeah. Um, he and, and it and it really battered his confidence around, and it took him quite a while to build into the team. And then he sort of then he started to do so, and he made himself dependable. And he bowled India out on the fifth day in Adelaide and won that Test match for Australia. And uh, and he got his confidence up, and he became an indispensable member. of of the side for that couple of years, um, bowled particularly well in the Ashes whitewash as well. He uh, went past 200 test wickets, which is not for nothing as an Australian spinner. There's mm. only a, a couple of leggies ahead of him, namely Benno, Shane Warne and Clary Grimmett, I think, are the only McGill's the spinners. McGill's on 208, so I think they're, I think he may have passed, oh, I see 200, passed yeah, yeah. or, or oh, drawn yeah, level with McGill. You know, there is, the fact that we're even comparing him to someone who was as prolific as Stuart McGill, I mean, yep. you know, these are, these are sensational. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure he went past him in, uh, right. in Sri Lanka, but uh, I couldn't swear to it, so well, he He's at least thereabouts. Maybe he's on the two hundred nine. So there's yep. those those three leggies um, ahead of him. But he, the fact that just in the last few matches, I think the Sri Lanka tour really did him some damage because he could not bowl Sri Lanka out over there. And he he did his best. He he put in a marathon effort. But they played him very well. They seemed very aware of what he was trying to do. He kept being told to change his technique, undercut the ball, do different things. He was having to make it up on the fly. Um, and I think he came out of that with really damaged confidence. And the selectors had the opportunity to help rebuild that by putting him in the one-day side. But they gave him one match in Sri Lanka and he didn't play the others. And then they didn't take him to South Africa for that series over there. And he said before that he really wants to play 50-over cricket. Indeed, he came into the test side in the first place through being a limited overs bowler. So that's undercut his confidence as well I think and he just doesn't look like he has the confidence in Perth or in Hobart um, to take on the South Africans Yeah and this might sound weird but with the bat either the way that Lyon bats can sometimes reflect the way he bowls and in a similar way to Mitchell Johnson and he hasn't looked potent with the bat at any opportunity, There's, I mean, it's a small thing but you can kind of draw some parallels between the confidence that he shows with the bat and Especially how he, that how he's, he, how he he's stubborn as a yeah. batsman, he digs in a bit in the test side, he takes responsibility even as a number 11, That's right. you know he top scored at uh, Trent Bridge did he not? Uh, he, he, no, he top scored at, um, oh, at, top scored at Cape, Cape Town, Town the yeah. 47. Uh, but I like how we identify these numbers, like oh, the Trent Bridge 60 or, yeah. or the Cape Town 47, or you know, right. I'm sure it'll be the the, the Bell Reeve 85 <laughs> now as well, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, he 
he the way he got out in that second innings very very tamely sort of chipped it to to mid on and it was a nothing shot and it wasn't the shot of a guy who said I'm going to make these guys sweat for another 30 or 40 minutes and and make them get me out he just gave it away and I think that is indicative that he's not he's not happy at the moment let's play a bit of fantasy football with the batting lineup we've we've gone through those who could be under pressure let's just, let's assume that Smith Warner and Kawaja are locks which effectively creates three potential vacancies, not to mm-hmm. say all of them will lose their spot, but um, there, there are certainly vacancies there, especially in light of the fact that Mitchell Marsh is clearly playing shield cricket for a, for yep. a sustained period of time and, 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 and they want to play six batsmen or, or a version of six batsmen rather yep. than the bowling all-rounder at number six. So this round in shield cricket, I mentioned off the top, that, that all the batsmen are back playing shield cricket and the, the talk from Darren Lehman yesterday as a selector and coach felt to me as though everyone is in contention, including mm-hmm. his son, Jake Lehman. So perhaps we'll start there. Jake Lehman has got had a, a pretty good winter, making a ton for Yorkshire when, in his brief stint over there. He got picked for the Australia A side that played in the um, in the winter unofficial test. He didn't do well there, but he got picked for that squad. So we know he's in the thinking of national selectors. He made a big ton in the first round of the Sheffield Shield. And I mean, if they're going to go to a Shield play, it, uh, there are crazier ideas than going to the coach's son, which will create, um, well, it'll be a hell of a story. And it might require, as Lehman said himself, to spend the next test match in the bar rather than the coach's box, so to speak. Yeah, I don't think that makes a lot of difference because surely he's drinking in the coach's box as well. <laughs> I mean, it's just a change Gotta of Got to be locale. fair income about it. You know, you know, I mean, it's all about building a strong team culture, which is getting drunk together. So, so there's Curtis Patterson from New South Wales, who that's number three for them at the moment. So he'll have an opportunity. He's the youngest man, I think, from memory, the youngest man to make a first-class 100 when he debuted at 17 some years ago now. Cameron White, is who, um, who was out of the Victorian side 12 months ago, but made a ton a couple of weeks ago. Young Matt Renshaw, who I'm a big fan of in Queensland, who um, mm. is Alistair Cook Mark too. However, he did cop a blow to the helmet he last week at training. so far this season. Yeah, he hurt his knee in the Matador, and then he, and then he uh, hurt he got his, whacked, in the, whacked in the head at training. So he, he might be just a, just a little bit off, but I expect but he came out this shield match and made a ton. I mean, it's, it's basically it's perfect match, you know. Like it's you, a bat off. You could whoever, excuse the excuse the terminology whoever, is what it is. Uh, yeah, whoever whoever puts a score together in this particular round of the shield could well find themselves straight in. George Bailey's an option, I think. I mean, they're, they're going to weigh up whether they want to go to some good, experienced older heads just to get them through this patch. So Bailey could be uh, an option to come into the middle order. He gave an enthusiastic job interview on Channel Nine on the, <laughs> on the cricket show on day one, I think, and said he's he's refined his technique and he's a much better red ball player than he was. Hint, hint, hint. Are you listening, Rod? Um, so he could come into the middle order. You know what? I'm, we haven't talked about this do it, one. Do it. Say it. Say his name. Make it. Make it happen for me. You know well, what I'm going to say. Just well, get there now. Do this first. You know. You know what we want, and I know what you want. You know what I want. We all know what we want. Okay. Well, we've got. I I, I do want to give you what you want, but that's that's a different Maxi. I'm thinking Maxi Klinger <laughs> oh, as an opener. <laughs> Now, Punch I, lo- I love you for playing on with this. I, 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 I really enjoy how long you how long you've I, held. I will this, hold this flame forever. But mm. uh, you're talking about you want someone who can play seam bowling. You want someone who can play on a pitch that's going to swing and move around. And you need an opening batsman. Michael Klinger answers answers all of those ticks all those boxes. It, well, it, it'd be it'd be an ex- it, it would be a, a bigger shock to the Australian side than when Peter Taylor was picked. I think in 1986, 87, 80, yeah, 86, yeah. 87, the final Test match of that summer. But then there's but, the other Max. The other Maxie. Now let, let come up, the, the, the big show himself, Glenn Maxwell. The last time I saw Glenn Maxwell bat, he made 150 in 50 balls in Sri Lanka in the one in the, uh, the T20 international. Of course, it's not the same colour ball. It's not the same format of the game. It's not the same conditions. But we know Glenn Maxwell has a pretty good record in. Chess 
challenging conditions for Victoria. He has a and for Yorkshire, he's he's made uh, some made good for scores them. for yep. Yorkshire on yep. seeming decks in the north of England. Uh, people say that uh, he's he's no good in in challenging conditions. He's actually maybe better in challenging conditions because when the conditions are easy, that's when he gets outrageous. You know, that's when he's trying to reverse pull shot ramp you over fine leg um, for six off the best bowler in your in your side. Whereas if he actually has to bunker down a bit, um, he's he's potentially a better player. And we, and we know that Rob Marsh is, is fairly um, binary when it comes to batting averages. He said yes. last year the reason that Usman Khawaja was picked ahead of Michael Klinger was his batting average. Now, I Which don't, was about 0.04 better. Well, uh, it, it, I mean, be that as it may, we, we know that's how Rob Marsh thinks. And, and, no, that's and, not and, how he thinks. It's how he justifies well, it. However I it genuinely is, don't how, believe that's however an honest it is. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use it as a reason for picking yeah. Maxwell, but Maxwell's average is 42 at first class all. So that's not for nothing in, in this discussion either. And even and last year... there are not year, many batsmen averaging 40 plus in the Shield. No, there are not. And even last year, Maxwell made a... Um, I mean, it was, Victoria were all out for about 100-odd against South Australia at the MCG on an absolute green top, and he was the only player that played with any any purpose that day as well. So he, he has got form. He made 150-odd in the second dig against New South Wales a few years ago um, in, in appalling conditions. and made 81. You know, I'm, I'm, the, the, the game I'm re- referring to is when Victoria were all out for about 280, and he made about 150 of them, yeah. in, about two or three. So, I mean, again... Well, he made 100 in each innings that game, I think. I think he made 90-odd in the first yeah. dig. So the yeah. point being is that um, the idea that Maxwell is a guy that, who just wants to play in India or just wants to play in conditions which are suitable to, you know, walloping blokes over mid-wicket isn't necessarily aligned with the statistics. So, or all, all the performances. So yeah. I think that the fact that they're playing two pink ball test matches in in what will almost certainly be seam friendly um, uh, conditions and tracks, I think will weirdly, um, counterintuitively perhaps, work in his favour. And doubly so because if they're going to play four quicks, and I wouldn't be surprised if South Africa do this, if they're going to play four quicks as well, Australia, yep. then having a bloke who can bat at number six and bowl some off spin uh, I, I think will will help uh, bolster that argument, especially in the circumstances at the moment where I mean they're, they're batting. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at players who are completely untested. Maxwell isn't completely untested. He hasn't done well at Test level, but he certainly has with the white ball. He's one of mm. Australia's most dynamic international players in the other format. So at least he's um, accustomed to that level of pressure and, that comes and, to playing for Australia. And in that sort of low scoring game, like we saw at, at Adelaide last year in the day nighter, he's the kind of guy who could maybe come in, get you a fifty or sixty that actually swings the match one and, way or and another. And save runs. And yeah, People forget that he's the, the best fielder in the country. If he yep. saves 10 runs in the field, that, that won't be... Uh, uh, again, that should be something they look yeah, we'll at. Say 10, 15 runs in each innings, you know, that uh, you, you might get up to 30 or 40 saved across the match. You might get a catch taken that no one else would will take. There, there are a few aspects there that are important. I don't think the fast bowling's really worth talking about too much, but what I, I, I do think um, it's reached a point with, with, with Peter Neville that there's a discussion to be had. Now, his glove work's impeccable, although it wasn't perfect in Perth, I would he say. Did, he, did he struggled in, in Perth. I oh, did he miss one? In, okay, I indeed. So. He, he, well, maybe it was. Perth, his glove know. work isn't isn't um, you know as good as it has been, but we know he's a sensational keeper. No one is questioning he's got the best gloves in the country. The, the question is, batting at seven yep. in a side as brutal as it is, has he um, done enough with the bat in the modern game? When looking at Quinton de Kock, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, that is a, a significant contrast between the two sides playing at the moment. A player who I think they might consider, especially in the world where they play four quicks, might be Matthew Wade. Now, Matthew Wade uh, is captain of Victoria. He's played a lot of uh, cricket for Australia, again, uh, in limited overs cricket. He's got an, you know, not a great test record, but he has made a couple of centuries, and in challenging conditions, his he's yeah. first hundred as well. So he, Wade could be, you know, a smoky for a spot because they, he's keeping, not going to question the fact that his keeping's inferior to Neville, but he's certainly a player who's got more dynamism with the bat. Yeah, look, the way I look at it, there's a huge contrast in this in this match in Hobart. Quentin de Kock makes a century 
in a rearguard action, saves South Africa uh, and puts the match out of Australia's reach. Peter Neville doesn't do anything of the sort, uh, wasn't able to contribute with the bat. And I think he's almost run out of chances to prove himself with the... We, we know that he's capable. He's made a shield double hundred. He's, he's a good... He's a better player than he's shown in the test side with Absolutely. the bat. But he hasn't been able to produce that. Matthew Wade is iron hands with the glove. You know that he will cost you a couple of chances per match. You know he'll drop a catch and miss a stumping here and there. So the question is whether the selectors want to gamble because sometimes that doesn't cost you. He might drop a catch and then the guy gets out next over or 10 runs later or whatever it is and you get away with having the dodgy keeper. Um, And then he goes out and makes 80 runs and, you know, you're, you're... you're in the good for that sort of transaction, but uh, you also get the kind of South Africa at Adelaide a few years ago where he drops the catches. Um, Australia can't win the game. They they go on to concede a draw that they should never have conceded, and he's the one who's cost you. Well, I think one thing's for sure. There's never been a more anticipated round of Shield cricket. This is The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Back to talk about South Africa. We can't go through this podcast without talking about the utter clinic their fast bowl was put on on morning one, afternoon three, and morning four. I mean, you know, without Dale Stain after he went down at Perth when um, Australia were about 160 for one, admittedly they got Warner, but, you know, it was looking like a very long test match for them. Someone needed to stand up, and, and that was uh, Rabada in the first test. But this second test match, uh, the trio who were down there, that was as good a fast bowling performance as a trio that I, I think I've seen. I can't think of a better fast bowling performance mm. from a touring side to Australia. It was a, a Quinton de Clinic. Uh, they were, <laughs> I mean, they were impeccable. The, j- just, just the relentless consistency, particularly that, that second innings. You know, Steve Smith was saying, I, I don't think I scored for my first 11 overs on that fourth day. Kyle Abbott just put it on the spot again and again and again and again. Uh, and there was that bit of seam movement both ways um, and there were balls that kept low and balls that left high and you know the pitch was playing a few tricks that that made things difficult and so they just kept putting it in that right spot and asking questions Philander did the same thing in the first innings and they reaped the rewards it was deeply impressive to watch yeah the 17 over stint bowled either side of T on day three between Abbott and Rabada. So they bowled a nine over and an eight over spell, respectively. Um, they were beating the bat routinely twice and over. I mentioned before that, you know, I have some sympathy towards Kawaja and Warner because the temptation when getting beaten that regularly, you may recall um, 15, 16 months ago, Michael Clark's rationale when the ball hoops around like that was to swing harder and harder and harder. That, you know, that, that actually wasn't what they were doing. They, they were getting beaten and they were trying to let balls go. And to, you know, to put yourself in their position, to try to let balls go when they're hooping it around corners. And we saw um, statistically, that they moved it twice as much on morning one um, in, in Hobart that Australia had on the corresponding morning one in Perth. So it was significant. And even the, the balls they got wickets from, that, that, that delivery to Adam Voges we mentioned before from Philander in the first innings, who picked up a five-wicket bag there, that moved, um, we learnt from Crickviz, um, three degrees in the air, which was more than any ball swung in, in the entirety of the innings. So they put Australia under sustained pressure at the worst possible time. It was the day they needed. Australia desperately needed the the, the tourists to have a bad day with mm-hmm. the ball, and, and they did anything but. Right. Well, exactly that. And, I mean, being able to adapt to the different conditions in Hobart versus Perth, I mean, Rabada, you know, Jesus, it, it, it's incredible that in Perth, Dale Stain goes down injured so early in the match. All the, uh, all the burden is put onto Rabada and Philander as the fast bowlers to... 
Uh, and, and you just expected Australia to be able to take advantage of that, dominate them, tire them out, grind them into the dirt, and it did not happen. Rabada just kept charging in, uh, would not give up, and kept taking wickets and kept going through the Aussies. Then they come down here, totally different conditions, much uh, much friendlier for that sort of seam movement rather than the, the cracking and bouncy pitch in Perth. But, uh, yeah, I... I think I'd have to agree with you. I don't think I've seen a touring side bowl better. Maybe, maybe England in the Ashes in 2010-11 were uh, were pretty well on the spot for long periods and uh, and brought those really really explicit um, particular plans for particular players and and worked players out. But that would be the the most recent time. Yeah, and I suppose you go back to the the, the three series wins the West Indies had back here in the 80s too. Not to discount that, it's easy to kind of bank that and, and move forward. But all the same, this was special, and all three of those quicks are now running around with averages at below 20. 23 and Dale Stane's gone home as well. So that gives you a sense of the... Yeah. And Rabada for his part, he's 21 years old and he's already near enough to the best bowler in the world. He's right. not quite, maybe not quite yet due to the, um, the longevity you need to achieve to be called that sort of thing, but he's pretty bloody close. I mean, he, he will be... You'd expect in 12 months' time we'll be saying um, that Rabada is the, is the best fast bowler in the world. He may be the best running around this week, you know. So yeah, that's playing, right. Playing at a match. Most in form at the moment. Now, um, what, I, what I also found interesting after play uh, was, was Faf Duplessis, who's fairly forthright in his comments about Australia. He realises that he's got his foot to the, to the back of the throat, uh, so to speak. And, and, and which of his teammates he's going to make out with after the game. Yeah, he, he, he noted though. he was going to um, sleep with um, uh, Kyle Abbott after he said the same thing about Gasego Rabada the previous week, which was quite impressive, I thought. But uh, he did also say that it was critical of Australia not bringing their, their full-strength squad to the, the five-day limited overs series that was played, you know, I guess, a month before the test match started or a few weeks before the test matches started. Uh, and, and, he, and he said he could sort of palpably feel Australia's lack of energy. Um, this has been a part of the discussion from Stephen Smith, especially after that Sri Lankan series, the lack of noise, lack of energy. Is this a, an era, is a team that, I mean, they always talk about the Australian way of playing cricket and it being noisy and chirpy and frustrating and whatever else. Is this, is this team... Just simply put, not really cut out for that kind of cricket. I, I just don't think it's relevant. I, I don't understand the relevance. I mean, Duplessis was also talking about his own side and saying, "Well, we're pretty quiet because we're confident about what we're doing. You know, we don't need to go out there and yell at people to know that we're bowling well or, or batting well." Sure, but is in the point that Steve Smith identified this after Sri Lanka Steve as something Smith that he identified it as something that he said was a problem. I am at a. You're loss. questioning whether it is. I don't think it's relevant in any way at all. I think if you've got players who are playing well, it doesn't matter what their volume level is. It doesn't matter if they can say some bland inanities about, come on boys, <laughs> let's all get around this. So let's get out there and bowl those pricks out or whatever it is that you say in a team huddle. What do you say in a team huddle? You know, Dirk Nanis was questioning this on ABC radio as well. You come out at the start of a session and have a huddle. He's like, if you don't know what you're doing yet, then it's not going to help in the last, okay, what we're going to do guys is try to take these last four wickets so that they're out because with 10 wickets, they're all out. Okay. Try to take the catches if they hit it in the air. You know, what's the point? Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of that stuff in cricket, isn't there? there when you're is... at the top of your mark and the captain comes and says, now, mate, just hit the top off stump and just move it away a little bit and try and get an edge to the... To yeah. the, to the... I mean, you know, it is, it is almost... It's sometimes when you, you were told how to bowl, it's like, well, yeah, mate, I've been doing this for however many years. But even so, that, that's a, interesting that 2 plus E wanted to emphasise that point and also reiterate that... They're not going to be happy with 2-1 with, with or 2-0. They want to be the first team to clean sweep Australia in Australia ever, which, again, would only add to the, the, the crisis point that Australian cricket has reached. And they, what, what one huddle they did have, which I thought was um, pretty impressive yesterday, was the huddle after the game on the field when they were belting out the song. Mm-hmm. That was We were lucky enough to witness that from the press box when we were still working after play. 
That was impressive. That was uh, that was passion, uh, and that, I mean, you know, that happens when you win a game of yeah. cricket. But I don't know. That felt like that was something special we were witnessing as well. Also impressive, just how many support staff they had. About fifty six people in South African. <laughs> too many coaches. Suits. We're told too many yeah. coaches. Yeah, that's yeah, what, yeah. yeah the, the warning theory. Oh, too many people telling you what to do it gets confusing. Um, they, you know, th- that whole support staff came out with them as well. Yeah, it obviously really matters to them, and it's interesting. I mean, there are. Relations between the teams are pretty good. I noticed that as as Duplessis and Abbott left the press conference and Smith came in, he made a point of going to them and sort of patting them on the back and shaking their hands and saying, well done. Now, obviously, he'd done that on the field for the cameras, but he also did it um, without anybody particularly looking at the back of the presser room when everyone was looking the other way. Um, there was there was respect there, which I I thought was quite impressive. So you know, th- there's not there's not disharmony between the sides, but the South Africans are they're ambitious and they want to be that side that clean sweeps Australia at home for the first time. And they are resilient. To use Steve Smith's favourite word, he said it about ten times across his interviews yesterday. At least he was on message. But that's certainly the performance we saw from South Africa this week. Every time they've had a chance in this series across the board to have a even a moment's chance of seeding the um, dare I say momentum back to the home side, they've they've never. Um, they've never relented, and that was certainly shown with uh, the 144 stand between uh, it was De Kock and Bavuda, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Bavuma. Yeah. Uh, they, they batted for the better part of two and a half hours um, um, on it would have been what would have been end of day end one. Of day, Feels yeah. weird to say that, but end of day one and into day yeah, three. Yeah, they were five for 176 at the end of that day, I think, and then went on deep into the next day as well. And De Kock looks like he was the only player out there who, who looked at complete ease from the moment he came to the crease. Yeah, and took on Nathan Lyon, smacked him around, knocked him out of the attack. Um, just just counterattacked with confidence and I suppose, you know, that's what they'll bring into Adelaide. And I think that's important as well because uh, it's worth noting that the South Africans were very uneasy about the day-night test. They didn't want to play it. It took a lot of coaxing from Cricket Australia and a, a little bit of arm twisting and a little bit of carrot dangling and, you know, a little, like, little bit of a back rub and, you know, a few other whatever needed to go around from James Sutherland to get the South Africans over the line. Uh, and the administrators agreed to it, but the players were not keen on it and there was discontent there you know, from what I've been hearing around the traps. So they finally agreed to do it. They've had a, a few pink ball practices. They've got another one in Melbourne coming up this week, I think. So they'll go into it with a bit of practice under their belts. But Australia has played a pink ball test. You know, a fair few of the players in this team were in that side against New Zealand last year. So South Africa would were made a point of saying they really wanted to wrap the series up before Adelaide because that was an unknown mm. quantity for them. Um, now they'll be going into it with a lot more confidence, but there is still that... There's that little bit of vulnerability where the Australians, if they could regroup, might be able to knock them off. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. Okay, that's it from Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the first Final Word episode of season 2016-17. We'll be back each week throughout. Please subscribe in all the usual places for your podcast at the ABC Grandstand iTunes page. Uh, Jeff Lemon Sport will be, will be able to find him on Twitter. Adam Collins, me, I'm Collins Adam rather, on, on, the, on the idiot machine that is Twitter. Jeff, how else do they want to find us? We'll be able to read your articles as the test matches go on on the ABC Grandstand website. That's right. Jump on, uh, jump on Grandstand uh, a couple of times through the tests. I'll be putting those pieces together and of course tune in to the broadcast on your ABC local radio stations around the country get the experts, get Jared Waitley, get uh, Chris Rogers, Dirk Nana, Simon Kadic, uh and Neil Manthorpe will be there again for the Adelaide Test uh, brilliant South African visiting caller so it be uh, lovely to, to have that crew along, tune in to them 
Indeed you do. So it's been a, an unprecedented week in Australian cricket. Next week could be something special yet again. Uh, a marvellous touring side, a, a besieged Australian side. It makes for a fascinating week in Adelaide. We'll be there to bring it all to you on the final word. Until then, 